This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. to value listeners this week we have dr sean griffin the president and ceo at urac in washington dc he leads one of the most trusted independent accrediting organizations in the country i had a chance to get to know sean uh, about a decade ago and he left an indelible impression on me as an early careerist getting into value-based care working with physicians at that time he was leading the uh, physician-led aco at Memorial Hermann Health System. He had the most successful ACO in the country, and he had no business even talking to me, but he really took the time to, to give me some guidance and, and really provide some mentorship and share some best practices. And, and uh, he's been someone that I've always considered to be truly an innovator in value-based care. And you're going to learn today a little bit about his journey, starting as a primary care physician, leading him you know, along a very interesting path in, in value-based care and, 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 you know, of course, culminating in what he does now at URAC. So, you know, Daniel, I, I just had a delight, you know, speaking with Sean and reconnecting with him, and I'm really excited to share this his story with our listeners. Yeah, definitely, Eric. I 100% agree with you. What a great conversation we had. You know, you mentioned Sean's career path. It's this really storied career from small town doc. And a, and he had these aspirations to just be this doctor in a small town and serving the people and building these relationships. And, and the evolution of that up until where he's uh, the CEO of, a, of URAC, this accreditation organization that oversees quality and, and guidance for clinicians and organizations across the country and the amazing influence that he has is just a, a fantastic story. And we talked in this conversation about that accreditation process and what it means. We covered topics like rural healthcare, integrated pharmacy, technology, and telehealth, just a, a lot of depth here. And Sean's got great perspective and insights that are going to be very valuable to all of our listeners. Well, I couldn't agree more. And Definitely, listeners, you're going to want to hear this episode. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating if, you so, if you're so inclined. And uh, we'd love to get a review on Apple Podcasts. And definitely go to racetovalue.org and sign up for our newsletter so you won't miss out on future episodes. And let me go ahead and now hand it over to you, the listener, so you can learn from one of the best in population health and quality improvement, Dr. Sean Griffin, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Sean Griffin, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so great to have you on the show this week. 
It is great to talk to you again. It has been a while. Well, it has, Sean. And I just wanted to tell you, as we start our conversation today, I just wanted to extend my profound appreciation for you as a leader and someone that really impacted my personal journey in value-based care. I mean, it's been about a decade since you and I initially connected. And at that time, I was leading a physician-led ACO in the Medicare Church Savings Program. And I was an early careerist, and I had prior experience in medical practice management on the specialty side, but I got really disenchanted with the business of healthcare. I saw a lot of unnecessary suffering that was inflicted on people because of fee-for-service medicine. And I, I took a trip to Cuba around that time, and I was part of a healthcare research delegation with a bunch of physicians and healthcare executives, and I got really inspired by the power of patient-centered primary care. And because of that formative experience, I came back from that, tr that trip and quit my job and, and took a risk in getting into primary care value-based transformation. And I, when you and I connected, I was the CEO of Integrated ACO. And basically, I'm out there herding cats. I'm trying to convince the PCPs of the tenants of population health management. And I wasn't even sure if like, is value-based care for me? Is this the, my path to professional fulfillment and long-term success, or is it going to be career suicide? And then I met you at this, at this conference and you were leading one of the most successful ACOs and clinically integrated networks in the country. I mean, the, the Memorial Herman healthcare system ACO, I mean, you had 2000 physicians and 800 practices you guys had, I think at around the time over your, uh, over your tenure, uh, around 90 million in shared savings. And you spent the time to talk to me and I had nothing to offer you, but you took the time to provide guidance. You shared some of your secret sauce. I mean, your willingness to provide mentorship and counsel really left an indelible impression on me and it continues to inspire me as an industry leader. So I just wanted to thank you for that, my friend. And I thought that would be a maybe the beginning of my first question for you, you know, on this podcast, we talk so much about this race to value and how it holds the promise to not only make our country more economically competitive, but also it holds the key to eliminate a lot of suffering and it can improve the human condition. And in that respect, you know, this transition is both an economic and a moral imperative. So, you know, Sean, can you describe what value-based care means to you per personally and professionally? And how does this promise of care delivery transformation at a national level provide you as a leader with the inspiration to serve others? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for those very kind words and, and, and sort of, you know, that chance to reminisce about the first time we interacted. Um, you know, when I think about value-based care, when I think about everything that's going on, I mean, it, it builds upon my background. I trained in rural family medicine in the state of Iowa, and, and my whole guidance in my career when I was, was, was starting out was I thought that my life would be becoming a primary care physician in what I call a county seat town uh, in Iowa. And I'd be you know, sort of me and, and three or four partners, and we'd be on the sidelines for the football games and taking care of the community and all those sort of things. And I, I came out of my, my residency program and I started practicing in St. Joe, Missouri. And I, I joined three or four partners and we were in this, uh, this uh, little office as part of the, uh, the Heartland system, now the Mosaic Life Care System. And, and it really was sort of going into that sort of community. I mean, I, uh, I was, uh, you know, seeing people and, and building a practice and all these sort of things. And, and you start doing your work and you, you start taking care of people and you feel that fulfillment and, and you, you see the problems. I mean, as, as you go through training, starting in medical school and all those sort of things, you see the issues that are coming up with, with the cost of care and the confusion of care and, and the pieces of care that people don't understand. And as a primary care physician, you build that relationship. And so 
to this day, I am a huge fan of the primary care relationship being at the center of, of a lot of medical care. And the United States is a bit of an outlier in that primary care is not the, the bulk of care that we, we do in the United States. A lot of the other countries, um, they have more primary care than we do, and primary care uh, in America is, is not that strong. Um, and part of my early work was I became a chief medical information officer, which was implementing systems and, and all these sort of things. And as I did that, I, I say my clinical time decreased and my administrative time went up. And I had a patient one time who came to me and they said, you know, Dr. Griffin, it's really hard to get into your office and, and we don't see you around as much anymore. Is it that you stopped wanting to take care of people? And, and as, a, as a physician who sort of, you know, saw his, his core goal as taking care of people, um, that was a hard, hard question to face. And I, I said, well, I have to tell you something. I said, in my career, if I'm a busy primary care physician and I'm doing every single thing that I can and seeing as many patients as I can, maybe I can touch 6,000 people during a year. That's about as many people as you can directly take care of being a primary care physician. And I said, what I discovered is that by doing my work on systems and with quality and with safety, I can help take care of everybody who's in my system. And at that time, that was, was Heartland uh, in St. Joe. And that was, that was a couple hundred thousand people. And I said, the other thing is, is honestly, I'm, I'm a dad. I have five sons. They're, they're now grown. Um, but I said, I'm not supposed to take care of my family. So some night if my son gets hurt and he gets taken to the emergency room, I can't be in the room to take care of him, but I can make sure that the systems and the tools that, that he has around him at that moment are the best that they can be because I've already worked on them. And so that's, that's when my career became more about quality and, and, and improvement and population health and those sort of things, because I just saw my career as a chance to take better care of more people. So when I, when I left Missouri and I went to Texas and, and eventually was part of the team, a fantastic team, by the way, um, I, I try and always be very careful not to imply that, that somehow I was the, the core to this, but great people on the team that, that helped build that ACO and that clinically integrated network. Um, and we worked with all of those docs. It was about about sharing that vision that, that we can do a better job of higher quality and lower cost and less waste if we work together and we do these things. And we were, we were successful beyond our wildest dreams when it came to saving money in the Medicare shared savings program and, and, and quality reporting and, and aligning physicians. And we were a very primary care centered group. And we had about 600 primary care physicians out of our 2000 physicians who participated in our, our ACO. And we really, we had stories of, you know, because we had case managers, they would reach out to people who maybe hadn't come into the doctor's office this year, uh, women who hadn't got their mammogram or people who had not gotten their colonoscopy, and we were pushing them to go get these screening tests done. And we had examples of people who we, we caught their cancer early because of the work that we were doing as a system. And we shared those stories. One of the things that I think healthcare is, is not good about sometimes is sharing our stories and having those wins and communicating those wins, not just moving on to the next patient, but celebrating those victories. And when I think of, of value-based care, I mean, value-based care has 10 definitions, depending upon who you ask. And you have you know economic definitions and you have system definitions and those sort of things. Um, but when I think about value-based care, it's how can we improve improve the care? How can we lower the cost where we can? How can we make it so that the people who are going into healthcare aren't being driven 
like to the beat of a drum to go faster and faster and faster and faster with everything that they do. And, and I, do, I don't want to, I don't want to drown out the human element that comes from caring for people. And that's what inspired me. I, I had, a, I had a teacher in the fifth grade once who asked me, she said, you know, Sean, you've been given certain gifts. And she said, the rest of your life, you're going to have to decide if you're going to use your gifts to help yourself or to help others. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a physician. And so I, I see all the steps in my career, which has been this wild, crazy ride as being chances to help more people receive better care through the tools and the gifts and the opportunities that I've been given. And so, so value-based care, whether it be Medicare shared savings program or some of the things that some of the systems are doing. And I, I had a, a wonderful chance to work with a lot of the good innovative systems around the country uh, when I was doing some consulting work for a couple of years before I came to my current role. And I, I still get to, to interact with some of those people is, you know, how, how are we going to do this better? What can we do? And one of the reasons why I'm in Washington, D.C. now is because I, when I was at, at Memorial Hermann, I said I would get frustrated because I would get 2,000 physicians to be doing the right thing and all moving in the right direction together. And then somebody would move a comma in a rule or a regulation or some bill would get passed and it would just upend everything. And so I, I mean, I've, I've had meetings with people over on the Hill this week as we're talking about, you know, what's the future of telehealth? How do we look at mental health parity? How do we look at remote patient monitoring and all those sort of things? And I always say, I, I always want to share my experiences because the, the, the things that we learn in medicine were never meant to be kept a secret. We're meant to share them so that other people don't have to go through the pain and turmoil that we went through to learn the lessons. And that's what evidence-based medicine is about. And that's what mentorship is about is if I can talk to somebody and, and share with them some experience that I had, and because I've had so many strange experiences, I still run into people, you know, maybe once or twice a month now who will drop me an, an email and say, hey, you know, Dr. Griffin, I heard you talk two years ago. I was just wondering, how do you handle, and they'll give me some example, you know, how do you handle a gain sharing agreement with the orthopedists or something like that. And it's like, well, here's, here's my experience on this, you know, take it or leave it. But, you know, keeping secrets is not something that, that, that medicine is built around. Medicine is built around sharing what you know, so that people can do a better job. And I think value-based care um, in some of the ways that organizations are doing it is demonstrating that type of promise. When, when we were running our, our ACO, I mean, we had over 10% savings for 500,000 Medicare beneficiaries, and that's how we, we save money. And, and it made a difference for the primary care physicians who were participating, and it made a difference for the specialists who were participating. And more than that, it made a difference for the patients who were participating. And so I, I think value-based care, when, when somebody throws out that sort of phrase, there's a lot of phrases in medicine. When someone says them, I go, okay, when you say that, what are you hearing and what are you meaning? And, I, and you know, the, the fact that I had a positive influence on you years ago, I, I, I just thank you for, for acknowledging that because I appreciate that. And I guess I was, I was doing what I was hoping I would be doing which is sharing my experiences. Well, Shauna, I can't thank you enough for that answer. This is our first conversation together. You're already inspiring me. And so I'm grateful for your leadership and the successes that you've shared. And, and you know, the thing that you said that really stands out to me that I think bears repeating for our audience is the gifts that we have, we can help ourselves with those or we can help others. And at the Institute and with value-based care in the industry and this whole transformation that we're all involved in. It's all about helping others. And so I think that that's just a really poignant uh, thought to have front and center as we continue our conversation today. I'd love to dive in now with you, Sean, a little bit about your work as the CEO of URAC. 
And we, we know it's a driving force for change in the value movement. And every step you've taken in your career, as you've outlined for us, and it's progressively put you in a position to make more of an outsized impact as an industry leader. And as a primary care physician early in your career, you made a difference in the lives of others, in the patients that you cared for individually. You said as a CMIO of a large health system, you've made a difference for thousands through the design, implementation, quality improvement, and use of health IT. And as an executive of an ACO at a health system level and the VP for clinical improvement and applied analytics at Premier, you've likely impacted the lives of hundreds of thousands of people in your leadership in physician hospital quality improvement, population health and analytics. And now you're at this point where you're the CEO of your act and you guide the development of standards and you provide validation of resilient quality care infrastructure at a national level. The progress of your career is truly inspiring. And I'd love for you to describe the URAC mission for our listeners and, and how attaining the URAC Gold Star leads the way to exceptional health care and serves as a catalyst for value-based care transformation. I appreciate all the things that you said. I mean, URAC is an accreditor. And when we think about accreditors, you know, some people go, what's an accreditor and that sort of stuff. An accreditor is an independent group that sets standards and then comes in and validates whether an organization is, is meeting those standards. So it, it, for, for programs, that's kind of like how you think about for a physician for board certification. I, I, when I practiced, I was board certified in family medicine. That meant that I wasn't just licensed, but I had done extra training. Um, and the analogy that I use is very, often regulation and law sets the minimum for safety, but that accreditation or certification sets the bar for quality. And, and URAC has a 30-year history of doing accreditation programs. And it, it's funny, to tell the story of URAC, I want, I want to go back to the beginning. URAC was founded because back in the early 90s, there was this tug of war going on. And, and if, if you were alive, then you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about in, in the HMO world. And, and what it was, was the, the, the payers were saying that doctors were ordering tests that didn't need to be done. And they were doing it just to make money. And the doctors said that the payers were refusing to have tests done because they were just trying to make money. And the patient was caught in the middle where they would be getting this message from the payer saying that test doesn't need to be done, but their doctor was saying it needed to be done. And so th th it was this tug of war. And so UREC was actually created to say, let's bring everybody together and set some standards. And by standards, I don't mean technical definitions. I mean, some, some quality qualities, you know, some, some, some program integrity rules about how you're going to make these decisions. And that's how URAC started was with utilization review accreditation. That's where URAC comes from as a name. Uh, and as an accreditor, most people are, are more familiar with groups like the Joint Commission Accrediting Hospitals or NCQA accrediting a number of health plans, which by the way, we also accredit health plans, but they, they are uh, the dominant accreditor of health plans. And there are all these accreditations that are out there. So what URAC does is URAC takes a look at areas in healthcare where we think there needs to be some guidance, where, where maybe this tug of war is going on. Uh, for the past decade, one of the areas that we've been incredibly influential is specialty pharmacy. And specialty pharmacy is, is the dispensing and monitoring of medications that are either high cost or high risk type medications. And more and more of our medications, the biologics and those sort of things fall into that category. So when you think about UREC's involvement there, UREC helped to define what were the characteristics of a program that is going to dispense specialty medications. This is more than just, you know, I'm on high blood pressure medicine and I need somebody to count out the right number of the right pills. That's to me 
pharmacy work. Specialty pharmacy is, you know, this medicine has to be kept at minus 30 degrees and it can't warm up or it's no longer effective. And we have to do blood tests and all these sort of things to monitor it. So specialty pharmacy is a much more complicated pharmacy in general is, is how you could think of specialty pharmacy. And, and one of the areas that we've been working in most recently is telemedicine. And we've been working on telemedicine since 2015, 2016. And I joke, I say we were, we were doing telemedicine before it was cool, before it was popular. And in telemedicine, there was this rush at the beginning of the pandemic where there were all of these visits that were being done by telemedicine and everybody had to do them and the government relaxed regulations and all this sort of stuff was going on. And, and what we said is telemedicine is more than just a good camera. Telemedicine is good quality medical care using technology to do it. And in some parts of the country, it's a phone call. It's audio only, they talk about. In other parts of the country, it's a video conference with, with broadband. In other parts of the country, it is a specialist doing a telemedicine uh, visit with somebody in another doctor's office to extend the specialty footprint. But we had standards in this back before the pandemic. We're actually on our second version of the standards before the pandemic. And then the pandemic happened, and there were all of these rules and regulations that get dialed back, the HIPAA restrictions, the, the originating site restrictions, the audio only, those things all get dialed back. So we actually brought together experts from across the country. You know, We brought together groups like University of California, San Diego. We brought in Teladoc. We brought in Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. We brought in legal firms. We brought in the federal government. And we said, what is quality telemedicine now? in the pandemic and we updated our standards. And what, what I have seen us do as an organization is we keep trying to raise the bar because raising the bar and, and advancing the quality mission as, as things change is what accreditation should be doing. And let me just say, there's a lot of good accreditation organizations in the country doing great work. And, and we compete with some of them and others were friends and those sort of things. But I, I believe in accreditation. I believe that accreditation can help to set national standards for what is good quality care. And it kind of goes back to what I said with, when I was a CMIO back at Heartland, you know, my kid's going to end up in the emergency room some night and I can't be there to take care of them. Well, I have a granddaughter now and, and my granddaughter may have a telemedicine visit. I would really like that telemedicine visit for my granddaughter, even though it's not going to be with me, to be a good quality telemedicine visit. And if, if someone can look at a telemedicine provider and they have been UREC accredited, I want you to know that that means we have we have looked at how they do their work, that they're doing their work in the right way, that they're taking care of people in the right way. They're not over-prescribing. They're not under-prescribing. They're not overcharging, all those sort of things. And it's a program you can trust. To my generation, I, 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 I make the analogy, it's like the good housekeeping seal of approval. We've checked it out. It's a good thing. You can trust it. Maybe for the younger generation, maybe that's Angie's List or something else like that. I'm not going to say that it was endorsed by an influencer because I'm not ready to go there. But you know, accreditation is supposed to be that mark that somebody who knows what they're looking for looked at it and it's something that you can trust. We're going to put our star on it, which is what UREC does is a gold star for a UREC accreditation. So when I think about the work that we're doing now with, with telemedicine, you know, we were doing this work with telemedicine in the United States and it was, it was seen to be so influential. We actually had international organizations come to us and ask about our accreditation. So we did our first international accreditation with a group called Ann Shams University in Cairo, Egypt, as they were setting up a telehealth, a telestroke program in Egypt, but also they want to be a telemedicine hub for the continent of Africa. And they said that they looked at the URAC standards and recognized them as being, you know, sort of worldwide leaders in what telemedicine could be in their area. 
And so they, they went through our accreditation. Um, a couple months ago, I was over in Saudi Arabia. They're doing a healthcare redesign of their health system because they're seeing the costs go up and the care not, not going up appropriately. And so I was over there advising them. And, and I, I seriously will go back to the fact of, wait a minute, this is this, this kid who grew up in rural Iowa and wanted to be a county seat doctor. And here I am over in Saudi Arabia advising them on their healthcare redesign for the entire country, or I'm talking to senators and Congress people about you know, how telemedicine can continue to provide the value that it should and, and not have the risks that you're seeing with fraud, waste, and abuse that some people are concerned about. So it's just been a remarkable journey to places I never imagined I would go. Well, Sean, you really make a great point about accreditation really setting the bar for quality. It's almost like URAC is like the Better Business Bureau for healthcare, and it really provides a foundation for defining and measuring and uh, showing the attainment of uh, quality performance in different parts of the clinical domain. And I'm really fascinated about the challenge that we have in healthcare right now to actually define what quality even is, since it, with many people, it's often really subjective. Uh, even though we have all these objective measures. I mean, on the measurement side, you know, I've heard physicians complain that many of the HEDIS measures, for example, they don't measure quality because they're process-based and it just creates a, a documentation requirement, almost like a, a measurement industrial complex just to get paid. And then from a, a patient perspective, I mean, most don't, don't even realize how clinical quality can be highly variable across providers. I mean, the average patient just assumes that the vast majority of providers deliver high quality care. And there's clearly a distinction between consumer and physician definitions of quality. I mean, patients might define quality as, you know, often maybe service quality and, you know, was the service available? Was it convenient? Was my appointment on time? Was it efficient? Was the staff courteous and helpful? And the clinical side of it, I mean, few patients anticipate a bad outcome or do even the extensive research when looking for a provider to face a grave illness. But for those that do, the metrics and the methods and you know the ways to assess quality are really hard to, for them to interpret and then much less to weigh against each other. For example, I can't even imagine a patient thinking, okay, well, I don't want a post-op infection, but like, how do I even make sense of the, the probability for that? And then am I willing to pay more to minimize that risk? So all that said, Sean, I really wanted to, you know, engage you on this whole like aspect of where in value-based care, where consumers are bearing more responsibility for their choice of providers and having that aligned accountability, how should we be thinking about defining quality goals in the provider domain to, to extend beyond clinical quality, but also to encompass uh, service reliability. I mean, is there a way to align physician and patient definitions of quality to create a more transparent and value-based model of care in our country? I think there are opportunities, Eric. And, and, and I think, you know, when, when it comes to measurement of quality, that is an ongoing unsolved problem in healthcare. And part of it is the fact that, that we're not talking about making tires. We, or we're not talking about building gears in a machine shop. We're talking about uh, people understanding what, what quality means in the area that, that they have health issues. And even that, patients are not the same in what they think it means. Uh, I, I used to joke, I used to say, you know, if you're a 13-year-old and you're going to go uh, interact with the medical world, 
you're mainly concerned, can I get my physical form filled out so I can play sports? You, you, you do not care about a long-term relationship with the provider. You're just looking about, am I going to get to go to practice or something like that for, for the sport I'm playing for, for people who are otherwise healthy? So when you start out, that relationship doesn't feel important to the patient. And as you get older, and I, I used to say it's, it's when you get a chronic condition or when you have kids that you start caring more about who you're seeing and who, who your family members are getting their care from. And, and when you get older and you get more complicated and you have more medical issues, then it, I think that that fundamental relationship at the core is, is of value. Um, but even when I was practicing, I can tell you that I had some patients who, if, if, if they were in my office and I, and I told them, I said, you know, to get better, you're going to have to go home and you're going to have to, you know, cut off all your fingers. They would have looked at me and they would have said, yes, doctor. And they would have gone home and they would have done it happily because the doctor told them to do it. And I had other patients who, if, if they came in and they had a runny nose and I said it was a viral infection, they would have the printout from 47 Google searches and WebMD about how I was probably wrong. And, and, and so you have these, these clinical interactions where different patients define your success and your quality in different ways. Now, the funny thing for doctors and, and, and providers, I, when I say doctors, I mean a lot of providers, is very often what quality is going to be for, for them is defined outside of that relationship. So, so the HEDIS measures, you mentioned the HEDIS measures. Anytime you're doing measurement, you very often have to start with process measures and then you move to outcomes measures. And even then you're not sure that they're the ones that matter. But, but having to do HEDIS measures is defined by your payers, whether it be the federal government or whether it be your uh, insurance companies. HEDIS measures were created because it was an attempt to help define quality through measurements. Now, the thing is with any system where you're measuring something, you know, you're going to find some organizations that game the system to look better than they are and others who just aren't good at it and who look worse than they are. And I, I mean, almost every measurement system, when they first came out, there were problems with the measurement system. I remember that, that some of the ratings on, on healthcare systems, when they first came out, the, the systems that I was always trained were outstanding systems scored worse than systems that I was told were bad systems. And when you looked at it, uh, you know, you discovered things like, well, they weren't adjusting for patient mix, or they weren't, you know, paying attention to such and such things. So, so every measurement system has its benefits and has its flaws. And I think one of the things that, that we see is that there, there is so much burnout. There is so much just disheartening that is going on within healthcare providers, the doctors, the nurses, the techs, the everything's right now that we just can't keep loading more on them. One of the things that I, that I used to do when I was at Memorial Hermann is when, when you put in systems um, sometimes people who are outside of care see that as an opportunity to put something inside care. For example, the doctors, it, when, when, when a patient comes in, we're going to pop up a list of 27 you know, care guidelines that the doctor should be following during this visit. And some of those things that, that pop up during that visit, the doctor has, has no need to spend time on in that visit. And they feel the constraint of a seven minute visit or whatever it is and those sort of things. So you're piling more and more upon them in less and less time. And so one of the questions that we, we don't ask very often in medicine is how can we put less upon the providers in that moment? as opposed to how can we put more upon the providers at that moment. And, and that loading up on providers is part of what contributes to the burnout that we've seen and, and the people who, who no longer um, are as excited about practicing medicine as they used to be. I, I had a, a meeting a few months ago where I was talking to some old friends of mine and, and they said, you know, you know, 20 years ago was the happy days of medicine. It was a time where, where it was about taking care of the patients and it wasn't about checking the boxes in the electronic medical record system or, or turning in these reports. 
And it's, it's still just an ongoing burden for a lot of providers. And patients, you know, in, in my family, my father uh, passed away uh, a few months ago. And at the end of his life, he was getting a lot of medical care. And even then, when I would go to see him, I needed somebody within that system to act as my guide to understand what was happening. I knew all the medical stuff, but explain to me why he's in this bed on this floor and who's coming to see him and what they're seeing. And because... It, it, it is so complicated. Most of medicine these days is very complicated. And what is an appropriate measure for high quality care? Is it that the patient likes the care? Well, if, if it's all about patient satisfaction, then you're turning the providers into a vending machine to give them whatever pill or elixir was the last commercial they saw on the evening news. That's not a good measure of quality. That's a component of quality, but it can't be the be all end all. Most of us have more information about how uh, how to pick a hotel in Paris than we do to pick a primary care provider when we're signing up for benefits at a new job. Sean, that's really profound and, and so true. And I I hear your explanation and I think of how challenging it is and recognize that we've got a lot of work ahead of us to figure out the right solutions for for figuring out quality for patients and, and defining it in ways that are going to be helpful to them in choosing better care. When I hear you speak about value-based care, you often express your concerns about the state of rural medicine and how our healthcare system should be reoriented towards creating more equitable care outcomes in underserved communities. And growing up, you were raised in Fayette, Iowa, a small rural community with about 1,300 people. In fact, you talked about your calling to be a primary care physician and how it was initially centered around the life of a small town doctor and having deep relationships with your patients, seeing them at the grocery store and being on the sidelines at Friday night high school football games. And unfortunately, we see that this dream of delivering care in rural America is no longer being sought after by most. We see critical shortages to healthcare services in rural communities. While 20% of the U.S. population lives in rural communities, only 11% of physicians practice in these areas. And the lack of physicians is deeply worrisome because rural residents are more likely to die from health issues like cardiovascular disease, unintentional injury, and chronic lung disease than city dwellers. And rural residents also tend to be diagnosed with cancer at later stages and have worse outcomes. They're literally examples of dire access challenges where patients have to travel over 70 miles just to see a physician at the nearest hospital. And it's only getting worse with this wave of rural hospital closures, where we've seen 136 of them close in the last decade. Given these unprecedented challenges, how do you think our country should address the crisis in rural healthcare? Is there a way we can realign incentives to get more medical students to decide on a career in primary care and family medicine? Well, there, there are some some schools that are that have been for years doing very focused efforts on on getting providers to go into primary care and to go into these areas. And and there's there's the financial pressures to pick a different specialty. There's the lifestyle pressures to pick a different specialty and go to a larger city. The decline that we've seen in the, in the rural population generally providers are affected by the same things. Uh, I mean, honestly, if if you are a person who wants to go see a Broadway show, you're not going to be setting up in Fayette, Iowa. You know, I mean, that, that's just just not the life that you're going to have there. And and I, I think that that there's a couple different things that you touched upon. Rural communities need targeted interventions to try and keep industries and, and providers in those areas. And that's one of the areas where I would say the federal government has to play a role in supporting rural communities. 
And the rural story doesn't get told as often in Washington, D.C. as it gets told in Des Moines, Iowa. Because, you know, D.C. has its own version of things that, that goes on here. And there, there is a little bit of a Beltway bubble of the, of the news here in, in D.C. And, you know, one of the reasons why I went into rural family medicine is because I thought, you know, if, if I'm going to be a doctor, I want to be able to practice anywhere. And honestly, I was a small town kid growing up in Fayette. And so I, I never thought I would be living in Washington, D.C. I just couldn't I couldn't wrap my mind around that. So having having rural people who go into medicine and who are supported in their rural town ties during that time. When I was at the University of Iowa, I did a rotation down in Washington, Iowa, which is a community about 30 miles away from Iowa City. And I had a fantastic time. And it actually sort of showed me what it was like to be a doctor in a small town. And it was it was Dr. Seiko and Dr. Prohoda. We would see patients through the morning and we would do hospital rounds. And honestly, we would go to the, the YMCA over the lunch hour and, and shoot baskets with some, some guys and play some pickup basketball and then go back to the office in the afternoon. And that, that was a lifestyle that that I felt I could do. And so when I when I went into practice and I, I did my training, that's what I was expecting to do. But it's it's not just the providers, it's the hospitals too. I mean, the, the economic pressures right now on rural hospitals is just ridiculous. It, it's, it's, it's crushing. And we're, we're seeing hospital closures and we're seeing, you know, negative margins. And we talk about you know, food deserts in cities. We have provider deserts out in the country. And there are times in my training where I was the only doctor in the county, you know, working the emergency room and, and covering the emergency room and those sort of things. And the statistics that you quote on, on, on rural health, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things if, if, if you want to be out in the open country in rural Iowa, you know that you're not going to be near a tertiary medical center. And if you have a stroke, you're probably not going to do very well. But but there, there's also underserved areas in, in urban areas. Also, when I when I was practicing in St. Joe, I used to talk about, you know, rural areas and the provider shortage that they face. And then I moved to Houston, Texas, and I discovered that the provider shortage could be the house right next to the interstate if they don't have access and if they don't have insurance or anybody who will see them they're ju they're just as poor off as as somebody you know out in a 80 acre farm and so so we ne we need to understand that that rural has its own pressures and and i think that the only place where that gets fixed is is federally and legislatively to where there's some recognition that you know if, if we're concerned about whether you can get electric charging on your tesla as you go across country on the interstate perhaps a bigger concern is if you can get health care if you're out in rural parts of the country well, Sean, I, I appreciate your perspective on rural America and, you know, how how we can be thinking critically about solving for some of these problems and ameliorate some of the the access challenges and ultimately patient suffering that takes place there. I'm sure you would agree. I mean, we've talked about this in the past, but really, you know, at the heart of a lot of what we can do to to reimagine our, our healthcare delivery system and make it better is to get more physicians going into primary care. It seems like primary care right now is really well positioned to be on the leading edge. I mean, just given the proximity it has to patients, the ability to go upstream, control a lot of the downstream utilization, and the opportunity for team-based care. And one of the interesting things uh, that I wanted to ask you about just in terms of what we're seeing uh, in terms of a transformation in primary care is this integration of pharmacists in primary care teams. I mean, we, we're now seeing in some markets with a lot of these leading innovators in value-based care where, you know, they're thinking about how do we integrate pharmacists into our primary care delivery model where the pharmacist isn't just out there on an island dispensing medications in the retail setting, but they're really part of our collaborative care model 
And these pharmacists are able to alleviate a lot of the demand for physician-provided care and facilitate access to primary care services and provide a lot of the, the necessary guidance and counseling to patients on medication monitoring, chronic disease management. And with so many medications ever increasing with patients right now, I mean, there, it, there's an impact uh, to be made on medication adherence. And, you know, ACOs can obviously reap the benefits of uh, pharmacy integration from an outcomes-based reimbursement model with reduced inpatient hospitalizations and emergency visits and uh, managing their patients with uh, ambulatory care sensitive conditions. So Sean, I want, you know, just as the industry is moving to value-based care, do you think we'll see more integrative models of care like the integrated pharmacy approach where we're tackling health disparities with a team-based multidisciplinary approach? And also I'm really curious in what URAC's doing in its uh, pharmacy accreditation services to include those services offered by pharmacists outside of a traditional dispensing, you know, type of service. So when it comes to pharmacists, I will tell you that, that pharmacists are incredibly valuable members of care teams, and they do tremendous work. My, my residency program up, at, up in Mason City, Iowa, has a pharmacist who works with the residents as part of that education that, that bring on board. When we were doing our ACO in Houston, Texas, we, we had pharmacists that we worked with. That was one of the areas that we invested along with care managers, along with primary care, because we saw the value of them doing some of that work to take better care of people. And when, when you take on the risk of taking care of people, you start seeing about how you need people like care managers and care coordinators and case managers and pharmacists and, and social workers and all those sort of groups working together. And one of the good things about medicine over the past you know 40 years is that we have recognized that the captain of a ship model, where the doctor is ultimately responsible and has to make all the decisions was not a sustainable model either for them or for the patients. And, and we have gone to this idea of team-based care and team-based care is the way to go. And, and team-based everything is probably the way to go within healthcare and recognize those people who are, are good at things. I remember when I was practicing, I had a patient one time who came into my office and they said, uh, you know, Dr. Griffin, I'm nervous about getting my blood drawn. Could you draw it for me? They just had a routine blood draw that needed to be done. And I looked them in the eyes and I said, you don't want me to do it. I'm not the best person in this office to draw your blood. And, and they, they just thought because I was the, the highest trained, I was the best person for the job. And that wasn't the case. We had, we had a, a person in our office who, who I would have draw my blood. And, and that's part of what I think about is, is who's the right person for the job, not, not what are the credentials, the highest credentials I can possibly make do the job. And when we think about right sizing and, and those sort of things, you know, it needs to be team-based care. My first office, we had a pharmacy, which actually had a window into our waiting room. And that was very convenient for the patients, but there'd be times where I'd step over and it'd be like, you know, this patient is on this medication and it has these interactions. What about this medication? And, and we talk about it. And, and honestly, over the past 10 years, medications have gotten a lot more more complicated. We have all of these biologics and all of these, you know, antibodies and all these sort of crazy drugs that are, that are just doing remarkable things, but they're really complicated. I had an older partner who I used to tease and I said, you know, antibiotics were easy when you came out because there were only three of them that were available back then. And now we've got 700 of them. So, so I, I think we need to understand that, that pharmacy has a very special role as, as pharmaceuticals and medications have gotten more complicated. Having them be part of the team is the smart thing for the patients and it's the smart things for 
for the providers. Now, URAC has a decade of being the, the leading specialty pharmacy accreditor, but we also have updated our pharmacy standards. One of the things that we do is if you go to URAC.org, which is our, our website, you, you could go to one of our programs, you could go to our specialty pharmacy program, and you could look at standards at a glance. And we actually list there all the standards that make up our program. And when you look at an accreditation program and all the things that are included, now I will tell you in the past, I worked with other organizations where we used to joke about hospital accreditation. It was sort of like the, they're coming to, to check the hospital quick. Everybody get the boxes off the top shelf and here's your badge that tells you how far it is to the nearest fire extinguisher. You know, that's not what accreditation is supposed to be. It's about the quality of care and the credentials of the people who are doing it and the ways that they involve the patient and educate the patient and those sort of things. And, and as pharmacies have gotten more complicated, specialty pharmacies have, have developed a role in their specialty pharmacy networks. And now there's rare disease pharmacies where maybe you have a, a drug that's $30,000 a dose for this incredibly rare disease. And there's 300 people in the country who have this disease. We started a program for rare disease designation and certification from URAC because we, we saw how this was going. So we have updated our programs. We have a bunch of updated programs out on our website. Um, and as the leader in, in pharmacy accreditation, we, we try and keep up with where we see things going. Now, there's other good accreditors out there, and you can look at their programs and those sort of things, but we've recently updated ours. And, and it's to reflect the fact that, that pharmacy teams and team involvement of pharmacies and care teams and those sort of things is changing and best practices to keep up with those things. And that's what our latest standards update says. Sean, as we're talking about some of the challenges of delivery care innovation and for value-based care, I'd like to circle back to something that you touched on earlier, which is the technology piece and all of that. As an industry, we're awaiting the impact of the 21st Century Cures Act, which requires vendors of EHR systems to certify functionality that allows physicians to connect any third-party app to patient data without any costly interfaces. With this great access to data would come a greater responsibility. The proliferation of technology and digital health tools would require the medical profession to make remarkable improvements in value-based care delivery, innovation, and transparency, along with an ethical commitment to guide data sharing, integration, and technical processes. And this embracing of big tech is so exciting to me as it can usher in a new era of innovation. It would also bring about the additional consumer protections we need to ensure responsible data liquidity. I'm interested in your thoughts when it comes to the bringing about the necessary data liquidity and information sharing to ensure that we can achieve the value transformation that we're all working toward. So, so there's a couple of things wrapped up in that question. Data liquidity, I was a chief medical information officer. So, I mean, I, I've implemented several of the, the big vendors platforms as a chief medical information officer. And the technology opportunity was amazing when we were implementing those things. And unfortunately, some of those implementations were done in a way that wasn't user-centric and the tools weren't that good for the users. And so I, I would say medicine is one of the areas where technology being put into medicine didn't necessarily improve the work or the workflow for, for many of the organizations involved. And that's one of the contributors to, to provider burnout. Nobody crosses the, the stage in medical school to grab their diploma to be told, congratulations, you're going to be a computer documenter the rest of your career. We, we went into it to take care of patients and sometimes that became a distraction. With, with the recent laws and the guidance and those sort of things, patients should be in charge of their medical information. It should belong to the patient. And barriers that have been put up in the past that 
were sometimes technical, but more often were administrative barriers where the organization was treating the patient information as though it belonged to the organization and not to the patient. And there, there was always HIPAA concerns. And I, I joke, I say every system had somebody who was their chief privacy officer who I would call a hypochondriac, who was somebody who was worried about a HIPAA data breach. And so therefore they put up walls as big as they could. And we talked about data silos and those sort of things. Most data silos are actually a function of being data kingdoms where somebody's controlling the data and doesn't want to play well with others. So I, I think some of those interoperability guidance and, and those are, you know, the problem is, is that interoperability costs money and, and how do you pay for it and who gets charged for it and those sort of things. More data is not always better, to be honest with you. If I'm seeing a patient, I would like them to have all of the information that's necessary for them to oversee their care. I think the VA is a good example that I have a son who's, who's in the Marines and he has a medical record that has, you know, his vaccinations and his, all those sort of, you know, health conditions and physical findings and those sort of things. I, I don't think technology is necessarily going to make things that much better. Um, and I say that as somebody who, who's looked at AI and who's looked at machine learning and those sort of things. And I, I think that one of the things that we, we sometimes forget about is that there's still this question of liability and responsibility and who do you trust with your data and how do you control it? And I've looked at blockchain and all those sort of things. So I, I think we're still working out the bugs on this. And I, I think that for most people, a relationship with a primary care provider will do more for their health than necessarily having a thumb drive or a place in the cloud with all of their medical records. Because everything that's in your medical record is not written for you to understand. And, and you can be, be chasing down rabbit holes where you find an abnormal lab test and you don't know what to make of it. And so you go and you look it up and, and some website says, well, that could be related to bone cancer. Well, you're, you're not in the age where bone cancer would be a realistic thought, but they have to put that on the list. And so now you're worried you have bone cancer. And so it, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time of dynamics. I think that technology for some people will help. I think for many people, it will confuse. I think that interoperability will help with your doctor getting more information, but they're, they're already getting by with the information that they have in most cases. There's two things in value-based care that are important. There are the population level, making sure that you're doing the right things for everybody. And then there's the targeted interventions where you're doing the right things that are particular for that one person. And that's things like controlling diabetes, controlling blood pressure, you know, making sure people are getting their cancer screenings, those sort of things. And we need to strike the right balance of that. And when you look around the country, there's some organizations, some large healthcare organizations who have an arm that's an insurance company or a payer. Very often they're trying to work out, you know, what's the right balance of those things so that they're, they're doing the right care, but they're also doing it in a financially sound way. So I would look to those sort of leaders, the, the, the Kaisers, the Intermountains, the UPMC uh, are just some of the organizations out there that, that are doing things to, to sort of work out the bugs as to what's the right balance to do those things. And the problem is, is that not all those things that they discover work for them are going to work for anyone else because it depends upon your population. It depends upon the risk profile of the people that you're dealing with and the providers that you have to work with. But I, I think that, that team-based care and, and pharmacists doing more things. I think we saw how important that was during the pandemic. And I think that, that they have earned their seat at the table going forward to continue to do the great work that they do when appropriate. Well, I couldn't agree more, Sean. And, you know, you talk about, you know, the importance of team-based care and the relationship. 
that we have uh, as providers with with the patients that we serve. And really, that's the currency of immense value. And we often prescribe this sentiment around technology that, you know, it's it's the holy grail. And certainly it's transformative and it's enabling, but it doesn't bring about the necessary change that we want to see in our healthcare system alone. You know, we have to think about how it can be complementary to that core relationship. And one of the things that, you know, I was kind of thinking about, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we saw this tremendous uptick in, uh, in, in telemedicine, you know, and certainly there's a place for that, especially in virtual primary care and, and behavioral health services. I mean, it, it's just not absolutely necessary once that relationship is established to have an in-person visit where, you, you know, a patient will have to trek downtown, pay for parking, take off from work. If something can be done more conveniently and, and really create a, a, an optimal service experience. And during the pandemic, we saw an explosion of telehealth activity. I know that uh, reoriented some consumer expectations for care delivery because patients are now realizing that there are visits that that do lend itself readily to that platform. But since the pandemic has kind of winded down or, or entered into an endemic phase, uh, you know, we're seeing that we're just not getting the utilization that we first saw during the early surge of COVID-19. At the time, you know, it was 69% of doctor-patient visits. And I think we've now resettled into a telehealth utilization that's more around the pre-pandemic norm where, so Sean, you know, how is the, how do you think the consumer demand for telehealth, you know, is going to be positioned going forward? I mean, is there going to be more of a, an emphasis on traditional face-to-face care, or are we just in a transitional phase now in the new era of telehealth where we will see, in fact, a continued acceleration in the years to come? Well, the, the the biggest question around telehealth is is telehealth bloomed at the beginning of the pandemic to just ridiculous levels. It's not fallen back to pre-pandemic levels, according to any of the stats that I have seen. And we have discovered that there are certain things that are perfectly appropriate for for, for telemedicine visits, whether that be an audio visit or whether that be a video visit. You're you're right. The, the the convenience factor was intoxicating for patients. I mean, they were just like, oh my gosh, I can I can hop on and I can can talk to a doctor and those sort of things. That was a great thing for patients. And you know, before the pandemic you still have to admit that there was probably a model of medical care that was built around the convenience of the providers, not of the patients. I, I remember my waiting room, you know, patients sitting in the waiting room and those were, it's like, you know, what other business do you have a waiting room like that where you're waiting to get your service? You know, e- even Chipotle moves better than that. I think we need to understand that with the pandemic, there were all these rules that were lifted that allowed telemedicine to be what it was at the beginning of the pandemic. And most providers right now are saying, okay, we know some of those rules are coming back. They're on hold because of the public health emergency. Some of those will be coming back and they're nervous. They're nervous about making a long-term change in the way that they deliver care or a long-term investment in technology because they don't yet know what the government's rules are going to be. And that's one of the big drivers for the meetings that I've been having here in Washington, D.C. is saying, you know what, you, ha- you have to look at telemedicine. And first of all, we need to break telemedicine down into the parts of telemedicine that made sense, that were good things. There were parts of telemedicine that did didn't make sense. For example, behavioral health visits with telemedicine can be remarkable. And we've seen that it decreases the stigma, it increases compliance. And so behavioral health telemedicine visits seem to be a good thing. Children's National here in Washington, D.C. talked about how doing a post-op check with a child so that they don't have to get loaded into a car and drive three hours to Children's National for a post-op wound check that's going to take 15 minutes and then get back in the car and go back, that that was tremendous. They want to keep those things. But you probably shouldn't have your your pre-surgical screening for a heart transplant.
implant done with telemedicine. You know, somebody probably needs to actually put a stethoscope on your chest and look at that sort of stuff. And we need to understand where it fits and where it doesn't fit. And what are the evidence-based guidelines for that? And how is it paid for? You know, some people will say telemedicine is great because they think there's going to be this huge opportunity for savings because no one would possibly pay as much for a telemedicine visit as they would for an in-person visit. And then you've got other people who say, well, I'm not going to do a telemedicine visit if it's not paid for as much as an in-person visit. I'll just have you come into the office because that's, you know, I, I've got to be able to cover my costs. And so, so there, there are these 27 different tug of wars going on about what's the right thing to do for telemedicine. And you have over the top of it, this umbrella as to what the federal government is going to allow, or what are the states are going to allow when it comes to licensure. And now you've got these big, well-funded groups coming into telemedicine from the outside, these disruptors. And are they going to displace the local community hospital who wants to do a little bit of telemedicine, but doesn't have the money for a big telemedicine platform? So I, I think we need to understand that, that, again, there is some promise there, but you have to make sure you're using the right tool to do the job. I, I can go into my garage and I can take my iPhone out of my pocket and I can use it to drive a nail into a piece of wood and it will get the job done, but it's not the tool for the job. And we have to realize that technology doesn't always make things better. Sometimes it just complicates things and we have to make sure that we, that we think about those things. Um, there was recent information that came out about a provider of telemedicine services who by all accounts at this point appears to have been overprescribing certain medications. And there's concern about fraud, waste, and abuse, and, and whether it was appropriate and those sort of things. That's not good medical care. You know, we wouldn't like that if that was a clinic down the street doing that. We'd call that a pill mill or something along those lines. So we shouldn't tolerate it in telemedicine. You know, convenience doesn't trump quality. And, and we have to see how quality flows into these things. And, and a lot of groups are waiting to see what the federal government does. During the pandemic, a lot of groups popped up to provide telemedicine, they're not all going to be here five years from now because some of them will have not been doing it the right way. Some of them, you know, the financial model won't make sense. Some of them just, just won't have the, the guts to hang it out, you know, to, to, to make it through the, the difficult times. And we'll see what the medicine, telemedicine landscape looks like years from now. But I, I, th I think that we need to understand that it is a different tool set. And if you give a, a, an interesting tool to a bunch of really smart people and ask them to solve problems, sometimes you're going to get solutions you never would have imagined because you can't think as creatively as all those people did when it came to solving those problems. So I, I'm, I'm very interested in telemedicine and remote patient monitoring. I'm interested in the wearables. I'm interested in, in machine learning and AI. But I also don't think that any single one of those is going to suddenly uh, change everything into the Garden of Eden overnight. So, Sean, I have one more question for you, and, you know, I've really enjoyed our discussion today, and, you know, you've spoken at great length about technology, and I really value your perspective on that given your your leadership role in industry, and you, you vocalized some of some skepticism around blockchain and AI, but, you know, we're also hearing in healthcare about the transformative impact on genomic sequencing and you know, using biometric data from wearables and nanotechnology to, to drive precision health models where we can have more of a, an opportunity to ind individualize care. And I'm really fascinated by that aspect in this future state of value-based care transformation, you know, where we are blocking and tackling and we have primary care that's activated and patients are engaged and we have economic models realigned. You know, is this is there a new opportunity for genomics driven care and more individualized care planning and a population health model? I'd love to get your kind of parting thoughts on maybe the future, you know, of technology and where it could take us, you know, if there is in fact an opportunity there within the broader movement to value based care. 
Absolutely, and, and I, I hope I can keep this to a, a fairly short answer for you. So, so let, let, me, let me tell you a couple things. Uh, back in 2008, I was looking at genomics and their opportunity to influence care in the future. And I was working with a, a large electronic medical record vendor. And I was talking with them and I was saying, have you thought about how your EMR is going to hold genomic data? And they said to me, they said, well, we, we at this point don't believe that it's going to be that important going forward. And I said, well, it's going to be, and you need to figure out how you're going to be able to handle it. And they dismissed me and said, we're not going to worry about that. That was back in 2008. When I was practicing, I was, I was talking to, to some of my patients one time and they said, you know, what do I think about genomics and how important is it going to be for me? And I said, honestly, I would know more about my patients' lives by seeing their Walmart receipts than I would by seeing their genome. Because more of what influences your health has to do with your lifestyle than the genes in your body. Now, that's an oversimplification because there, there's clearly diseases that we're going to find. We're already doing that. I mean, when, when my children were born, they had, they had blood screening done right after they were born for certain diseases because we could do a heel stick and, and check their blood for certain metabolic diseases. The same thing is going to happen with genomics. I've, I've done you know, ancestry DNA and that sort of stuff. And so there's been genomic analysis. Now, I didn't pay the extra for the health analysis because I was more concerned about who my third cousin was than whether I have a risk for Alzheimer's or those sort of things. But as the price of doing genomic analysis comes down, and we're seeing this in, in some of the, the, the leading organizations are doing more and more genomic analysis on patients, there's going to be screening genomics which is just like other screening tests where you apply it to the population and you're looking for risks for diseases that you can do something about. Because not everything you find in a genomic analysis is determinant of how your life is going to be. You know, you may have risk factors. If you have a risk factor for heart disease that's 20% versus the baseline in the general population of 5%, are you going to make the lifestyle changes to lessen that to, to bring it back? Well, as, as we have seen with things like prediabetes and obesity, Americans sometimes don't do what's good for them, even when they know what's good for them. And so, so we have to think about how that fits in. And still, if you look at a person's health, more of it has to do with their lifestyle choices than their genomics. But there are places where genomics very clearly will come into play, whether it be personalization of medications, where you can analyze their genome and they have a certain gene for metabolizing something in a certain way versus somebody else. And so, you know, for their cancer, I think cancer is an area where genomics have been in incredibly important and they're doing remarkable things with cancer. I make the point of when somebody tells me something about, you know, they have this cousin who has cancer, you know, what does that mean? I say, I don't know anymore because you have to look within the past six months to see what the survivability is of a cancer these days because they're doing such tremendous work when it comes to targeted interventions. So I, I think genomics will have a, a, a broad role for screening. I think it will have a more particular role in things like certain diseases, certain drugs. Cancer is, is definitely one of those, but it's, it's still not going to be a determinant for most people's level of health compared to whether they got their 10,000 steps or whether they you know, ate 14 hamburgers last week. And so I, I think we need to keep it in perspective. Now, wearables, I have an Apple watch on my wrist and I use it for keeping track of my exercise. And I think it's a good thing and it's an encouraging thing, but also it's of limited use for me medically right now, just because of the fact that I don't have a condition that lends itself to where wearables important. And most people who have wearables these days are not wearing them because they think that it's going to make a difference in, in their health for a specific medical condition. Now, 
diabetes, COPD, certain chronic diseases, there's definitely some indication that wearables will be important for them. And I absolutely love the uh, diabetic uh, blood continuous blood glucose monitors and, and those sort of things. I think they're making a tremendous change in how diabetes is cared for, but we're just not there yet. It's still evolving and we have to watch out how, how those things play out because there's still you know data security issues and who do you trust with your data. And when I go get a, an Apple watch and it shows me to, uh, to be a little out of shape, am I suddenly going to be getting ads on Facebook for diet pills or something like that? You, there's, there's all the ways that these things interact that I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you know, you, you've got to be concerned about who, who's seeing your data and what are they going to do with it? Well, Dr. Sean Griffin, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of the Race to Value. We're really grateful for your time and what an excellent conversation we had. I know our listeners are going to find it really meaningful. And, and uh, if they want to learn more about URAC and have questions for you, where can they find out more information and how do they get in touch? Our website is urac, urac.org, urac.org. Um, we're located in Washington, D.C., a couple blocks away from the White House. And uh, they can reach out through us through our website, and we'd be happy to follow up with them. And I really thank you guys for, for letting me come on board and, and, and talk about these various subjects. Good to catch up with Eric after all these years. I appreciate the, the fine, nice things that he said. I, I will just uh, just say that I, I appreciate that we're, we're trying to share what we think and what we know with other people so that they can have have insight from some of the people who are closer to it and, and have a, a closer perspective. And so just thank you for your work that you put into this podcast. And uh, I hope that your viewers found my insights valuable. We appreciate it, Sean. Let's definitely stay connected. And thank you for all that you do and uh, service to our industry and creating a, a better way for us to deliver high quality, more equitable care. Thank you, Eric. 